we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, Kian here. This is a special bonus episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. What does it mean that it's a bonus episode? Mostly that's kind of an excuse as to why I don't have a whole ton of research done for this one, as I usually do. Um, if you're a listener, a fan, you know that I like to try and track down primary sources for all the weird stories I like to tell as often as I can. And this is just sort of my off-the-cuff comments and thoughts about the movie The Devil Rides Out from 1968. It's an old Hammer horror movie. This is an absolute favourite of mine. I just happened to watch it this week and I felt like uh, getting some of my thoughts out there. So not a, a deep scholarly take on it, just my own thoughts. Hi folks, Editing Kian here. On a re-listen to the episode, I feel like I might be a tiny bit hard on the Hammer Studio in this. Uh, hopefully that won't bother you and hopefully my clear love for The Devil Rides Out should make up for it. Secondly, there's a bit of talk about the history of paganism and conceptions of it and the history of quote-unquote Satanism. It's a very complicated issue. I'm a little easy breezy about the history of that in this episode just because it is an off-the-cuff one. For a more detailed, nuanced take on that really complicated topic, uh, check out our episode about uh, Margaret Murray and the history of the witch cult hypothesis. Also deeply, deeply interested in the work of Dennis Wheatley, who is the British uh, sort of thriller writer who wrote the original book Devil Rides Out back in the 1930s. That's what this film is based on. And I'm actually making my way through a massive biography of him at the moment. That is a book called The Devil is a Gentleman, uh, Life and Times of Dennis Wheatley. That's by Phil Baker. And a lot of the bits and pieces of information that I have about Wheatley are coming from that book as well. So uh, that's just kind of what I wanted to do with this episode. On Saturday, if you're listening to this uh, when it actually comes out, we do have our next proper episode coming up, which is about Lovecraft and the Irish. And that one is in the can now, so I'm happy to say that our guest for this one is the uh, writer W. Scott Poole, who wrote the book In the Mountains of Madness, which is a fantastic biography of Lovecraft. And it's a really great episode. We get talking about Lovecraft's attitude towards different groups of people and race, as people always do, the problematic aspects of his work, as well as the fun aspects. But uh, just for a slightly different take on Lovecraft, something that hasn't been done too much before, um, I was asking Scott about the appearance of the Irish and the Celts, particularly in his worldview and in his stories. We spend quite a bit of time talking about the short story, The Moon Bog. So it, you can get that anywhere online. If you haven't read it, you can read that one before listening to the Saturday episode, but it's really good. I'm really happy with it. It was a wide-ranging conversation. We get to talking about all sorts of great aspects of weird literature, and uh, Scott is just incredibly well-versed and well-known and well-read in all of that kind of stuff. So it was really great fun, and I'm looking forward to putting that one out there. But today we are talking about The Devil Rides Out, uh, Hammer, Hammer Horror Film. I'm not a big Hammer guy in general, the films just weren't on TV in Ireland when I was growing up, or at least I don't remember them being. I know that Hammer films are tremendously nostalgic to a lot of people of a certain age, especially in the UK. They just didn't get much of a showing here. I, I sort of feel that even though I liked horror and I liked, you know, Victoriana, 
I think I would have found Hammer films as a kid kind of stodgy and kind of dated. And it's really interesting to me. They have this reputation, uh, certainly amongst people who uh, watched them back in the day, that they were very shocking and they had higher levels of gore and blood um, and that they were somehow sensationalist and you know I can see that and there's a lot of fun to be had with Hammer films even coming to them fresh today but they were definitely definitely would have struck me as old-fashioned and a bit slow and a bit dated I think as as a kid the same way some of the like 70s James Bond films did even though I enjoyed them I found them kind of kind of a bit silly so Devil Rides Out in sort of late period Hammer uh, this is after most of their early successes. A lot of their early stuff, obviously, they got they kind of made their name doing horror films and, and kind of doing remakes of all the 1930s uh, Universal monsters with Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff like that. This is a slightly different. This is mining a different vein, and I think it's it's way more fun for that reason. This is a basically they're they're taking a British writer who was a big deal back in the 1930s and updating one of his stories, but keeping the period setting from the 1930s, which is one of the things I like the most about this film. Interestingly, let, let's talk about the, the late 60s. So it's a time when there is absolutely an occult revival going on. Uh, you have various uh, famous rock bands starting to write songs about the devil. You have this idea of the age of Aquarius. And, you know, some of it is peace and love, and some of it is new age and positive, fluffy light. And But there's also more sinister stuff going on. There's obviously the cult stuff with the Mansons, and there's obviously um, the, the rebirth of, of the kind of new age Satanism, what I sometimes call you know, art school, or <laughs> what I sometimes call uh, art school Satanism with Anton LaVey. But this one is really interesting because they're taking something which is so of its time. Dennis Wheatley really hit his stride in the 30s and 40s. And, you know, he kept getting, he was exhumed once in a while in the decades after that. And he did keep writing right up until the 1970s. But, I mean, whenever there was an occult revival, his books would get republished with, you know, more lurid covers um, but he really was a, a creature of his time and place, and it's really interesting that Hammer would choose this time to bring out his novel. Now, I or bring out this film version of his novel. I think this film will be his lasting legacy and was his lasting legacy. I personally would never have come across Dennis Wheatley were it not for this film. He, he was ubiquitous once upon a time. He was to, His novels were to be found absolutely everywhere, especially in the UK. And I know from living there for several years that they still they still populate the shelves of secondhand bookshops uh, very, very thickly. And uh, there's nothing like coming across a treasure trove of Wheatley novels um, in, in a secondhand shop. But, like, by and large, his reputation has kind of vanished, except amongst certain kinds of fans of cult novels, uh, thriller novels, and people with an interest in the occult, largely. He is largely remembered as an occult writer, even though he wrote he wrote pretty much a novel a year, if not more, like from the early 30s right up until the early 70s. And he tried his hand at just about everything. He was really interested in history. He was He wrote a lot of historical fiction. He was really interested in straight political thrillers. He did a lot of science fiction, but his biggest splash was 1934's Devil Rides Out the book, which I've read many times over the years, though not recently, and I don't actually have my copy of it to hand at the moment, so I will be making comparisons between the book and the movie, but when it comes to the book, it's I'm going a little bit on memory, so it might not be as up to scratch as I usually like to be. So, let's talk about the film. 
1968 Hammer, uh, directed by Terence Fisher, who of course is well known to Hammer buffs. He did a lot of their classics. Uh, and it's this film has got a lot of pedigree. It's got Richard Matheson doing the screenplay. Richard Matheson, obviously, very well known. Uh, American writer of The Strange, probably best remembered today for I Am Legend. He also wrote Hell House, which is a favourite of mine, and it was a kind of a response to Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. It's far more nasty and grimy and and much more visceral than her book. Her book is more sort of psychological horror, and his is like really full on. I enjoyed them both in in different ways, but I for some reason I think I prefer I prefer Matheson's take, and maybe there's some clues in that book that show how indeed he would have been sort of suited to working with a studio such as Hammer. This film overall is is cheesy, it's creaky, it's old-fashioned, it's a lot of fun, but you have to come to it from the right frame of mind. And while Dennis Wheatley in the 1930s, I think, cemented a certain image of what we now think of as being quote-unquote Satanism in popular culture, what with these like upper-class uh, types living luxurious lives in country manners, uh, having these weird occult ceremonies and everybody's wearing robes and there's black masses and black candles and there's a you know a naked woman on an altar being sacrificed. The history of that idea is is long and complicated and, and has picked up different elements from various sort of pagan schools of thought over the centuries, but really kind of formulates in Victorian times with certain you know, French especially, occult writers, and then is kind of hammered into shape in the early 20th, as far as I can tell anyway, with people like, uh, to some degree, Alistair Crowley, but more Montague Summers, and then Wheatley himself sort of fashions all this and bolts uh, the thriller aspect onto it. So Devil Rides Out is sometimes regarded as being a classic 20th century occult novel or horror novel, but it's like it's it, there are way too many car chases and you know two-fisted punching out the bad guys and uh, shooting at each other and stuff like that for it to be really a horror film it's more like a, a horror story it's more of a thriller with horror elements but my own my own belief then is that the film in the 60s fur further cemented this image of kind of hollywood satanism as we might call it because i suppose the film must have had a wider reach than the book and as as a kid I caught a little bit of this film I think at a relative's house and I, I, I remember an older relative saying oh you don't be watching that sort of thing that's that's dangerous or or it's, it's somehow problematic which always stuck with me because you know me and my brother liked horror growing up and nobody ever really told us we shouldn't be and it never you know horror never felt like this transgressive thing to me because it was obviously just movies and books and stuff and fictional but for some reason the devil rides out was different when it came to you know stuff like satanic things and um, this was taken more seriously by adults i knew which i think made an impression on me and i mean say what you will about old-fashioned what, what that might have said about old-fashioned catholic ireland uh, the place of the devil in catholic ireland i think is not nearly as um, direct as the devil is in other other types of Christianity. I don't feel myself that he is really emphasized. Like the idea of sin is is emphasized. The idea of personal responsibility and personal sin is a big deal in Irish Catholicism. But the devil himself as a physical character who you have to look out for and be wary of, 
Um, a friend of the show, Vic- Victoria Pearson, w- once told me that she reckons some of that is down to the fact that over the centuries, the the devil has appeared in Irish folklore, you know, in various forms like the puka and stuff like that. And maybe he was too folkloric to really be an effective sort of um, character within serious theological thought. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a theologist. I'm just uh, talking off the cuff. Anyway, let's let's get into the film. Let's get into the film itself. So. It's, it starts off with a really blaring score and the music throughout is really melodramatic and bombastic and over the top. It's good. It's got this kind of bum, 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 and you've got to turn the sound down because, I don't know, every version of this film I've ever seen has the mix all messed up. Maybe that's just what the mix was like back in the day. Maybe that's how Hammer liked to do it, but you you will have your hand on the remote control at all times ready to pull it down just in case. And uh, while the score plays, we get all these amazing spooky occult sort of images. And a lot of them are, you know, pictures, of, you know, that classic picture of Baphomet, the the, the ancient demon who uh, has horns and woman's breasts. And uh, most of the pictures, as far as I can tell, are taken from various uh, occult writing, writers of the 19th century specifically a fellow, I think the name is Eliphas Levi, something like that, if I'm saying that right, who was well known for uh, 19th century French books about the occult for doing grimoires. And he came up with some of the imagery that we still associate with Satanism. And um, again, he was writing in that time period when people were kind of saying, oh, you know, there really are groups of Satanists out there and, um, you know, mixing in lots of elements of pagan stuff, which, which we'll get to. So, yeah, I've already talked about, I've got some notes here. I already talked about the 1930s setting, you know, as a, as a counterpart to the 1960s occult revival. This is, you know, Hammer had tight, tight budgets, and it does show occasionally, but they were very clever and very creative at making use of their budgets. And, um, you know, fans of horror tend to, or fans of Hammer tend to like to point out, you know, oh, you can see the same set being reused time and time again. But... They really do get across the the 1930s aesthetic of Dennis Wheatley here very nicely. There's a lot of period cars. There's a lot of, you know, old mansions in the the English countryside, which are, ever since I was a kid, are things that I have deeply associated with this kind of Hollywood Satanism. I enjoy it very much. The... I'm going to say something about Wheatley here, which is that in in the biography... Somebody, Phil Baker mentions a quote from somebody I don't remember saying that he was in the, quote, cheap tradition of luxury novels, which is the idea that Dennis Wheatley said, you know, people who live in, you know, small little grubby lower class houses basically don't want to be reading about other people who live in small little grubby houses. They want the luxury. And he always, I mean, he was obsessed with the British upper class himself as a deeply sort of class conscious middle class guy who he was a wine merchant which figures largely into his writing and he worked with the great and the good and the upper class of England by selling them all these fine wines so he was notoriously a tremendous snob Um, and this this shows up in his work all the time so he liked to write stories about very rich people who lived luxurious lives and you know this was you know during the 30s the 40s during rationing during kind of tough times for the British public Maybe people really did enjoy this, and certainly at a time when, you know, most people didn't travel, uh, Wheatley's novels, almost like proto-James Bond novels, and 
Wheatley, of course, was friendly later on with Ian Fleming during the war. And I think Fleming definitely took some ideas from Wheatley because Wheatley wrote a lot of like uh, uh, straight spy novels and stuff. And the other thing he did was he was an early writer to sort of do product placement where he would mention real places in London, real clubs and restaurants, real types of wine and alcohol and uh, cigars. So he, he would drop all these names to show you you know, how well his characters were living. So his main character in Devil Rides Out, the Duke de Richelieu, is always smoking uh, Hoyo de Monterey cigars and he's always drinking uh, Imperial Toque wine, which are all real, real products that were considered luxurious and that Wheatley uh, would have been an expert in. So that really, uh, that really shows in this film and it's not Hammer's usual period, time period that they like working and obviously they, they do a lot of Victorian stuff so but I mean think thinking it was only you know 30 odd years uh, since the time period that they're setting so maybe it wasn't quite so difficult to get a hold of all of the period cars and stuff like that also there's a whole system in the UK of sort of enthusiasts of you know these old cars who get together for automobile uh, get-togethers and stuff like that so perhaps they tapped up a few of those too so our main characters in this are straight out of the novel it is basically based on the Three Musketeers, uh, D'Artagnan and the Three Musketeers, because Wheatley was obsessed with um, with, with Alexandre Dumas, who wrote that book, and he copied the basic setup of his characters. So you have these three friends and then a fourth one who's kind of like the, the, the master, the old hand, the older one who knows more about what's going on. And in each of his early novels, one of these characters, one of the four, disappears, gets into a scrape, and the others have to sort of pull him out. So you've got the Duke de Richelieu, who's played magnificently, of course, by none other than Christopher Lee, old hammer hand. And I believe this is one of his favourite roles. He's known to have said later on that he would love to have done a remake when he himself was a little bit older and actually closer to the Duke's real age in the book, as he's supposed to be some kind of guy in late middle age or maybe even a bit older. And the Duke in Wheatley's novels is a... He's a French guy who has left France because he was in some he was involved in some kind of plot to like overthrow the French government and install or reinstall the monarchy. Wheatley was a massive monarchist. Uh, so instead he's come to England, he's an Anglophile, he lives well in London, um, and you know, he drinks only the finest wines and he has, you know, many fine automobiles and just kind of lives the old fashioned aristocratic high life in London, which is all the things that Wheatley loves. And the other three guys are also interesting when it comes to Wheatley's worldview. We've got Rex Van Ryn, who in the book is an American and kind of represents Wheatley's, you know, the positive things he has about American culture, which is that he might not be quite as sophisticated as our European and English characters, but he is still is a good guy. He's a bit of a two-fisted bruiser when he needs to be, but, you know, he's he's loyal He's rich, he lives the good life also, and he's there for his friends when need be. He's always tooling around in places like Biarritz and Monaco, you know, gambling and meeting women and stuff like that. So he's a bit younger than the Duke, he's a bit of a playboy. Simon Aaron is the missing character in this book. He's the one who's got, you know, fallen foul of something and kind of gets the plot going. And Simon Aaron, the characters are a bit different in the film. Rex is not American, he's just English, but otherwise... He, he's played by um, Leon Green. Simon Aaron is played by... Let me just make sure I get this right. Oh yeah, Patrick Moore. 
Simon Aaron is notably Jewish in the book, and Wheatley, you know, despite the popular remembrance of him as being a very racist author whose baddies were always foreign, and there is a lot of truth to that, he had a lot of Jewish friends, and he was, you know, he was he was keen to portray them in a positive light in his novels, and much is made in the book about Simon Aaron's Jewishness, and, and we'll come to that, but yeah, didn't didn't make it into the film. Um, so there is a fourth member of the group who I'll, I'll get to in time. So it, it basically, it turns out that Simon Aaron is supposed to have been around for uh, a meeting once a year. They all get together and have a fine dinner and fine wines, but he's not there. So the Duke decides that something's up and the Duke and Rex go to Simon's house, which is in St. John's Wood in London, which is a place Wheatley did move to shortly after this. And uh, he lives in a, Simon lives in a fine, big, aristocratic house. And the two note on the way in that there is an observatory on the top, which is going to become important. So there's a party going on inside, and uh, in true weekly form, there are various nefarious characters who all have some physical defect, or they might ha just have the defect of just not being English. So one of them has, like, strange eyes, a number of them are obviously, like, African or coded as being African, and, and, and from various other insalubrious parts of Europe, as Wheatley might have seen it. We meet two important characters here. We meet Tanith, who is played by Nike Arigi, I think I'm saying that right, and Mr. Makata, played by the great Charles Gray. Now, Tanith is basically the love interest she doesn't really get a whole lot to do. Her character is like kind of weird and aloof uh, for most of the film because she is sort of under the control of Makata, who's our our baddie. He's the sort of occult uh, baddie. So yeah, Tanith, um, played by Nike Arigi, she's very, very lovely, but don't have a whole lot more to say about her, except that unfortunately she doesn't really get a whole lot to do. There are some better female characters in this, better written female characters in this, and we will get to that in time. Makata, on the other hand, is uh, great. He, so he's he's played by Charles Gray, and Charles Gray, of course, um, as far as I know, he was... Yeah, he was um, Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. So, classic British actor. He plays Makata with just the right amount of sliminess and uh, self-confidence and if I remember correctly, in the book, Makata is more based on Alistair Crowley, who Wheatley did know. He met him and he had dinner with him, but never really said much about it, didn't mention it in his own diary, didn't think it was important, never told any anecdotes about what happened when they met. And this was kind of when Alistair Crowley was in his sort of on-the-road-down stage. So by the 1920s and 30s, he was a bit of a joke around London. Um, a lot of people met him, expecting him to be this kind of scary, uh, imposing character because of all the stories they'd heard. Phil Baker in the book mentions that he, when you did meet him, he'd be more likely to like try and borrow a fiver off you. <laughs> so a lot of people would would you know be excited to meet him and then find out that all he wanted to do was like eat a fine lunch with you and have you pay for it and then just like get completely sauced and boozed up before midday so he was a bit of a sad character by this point mokata in the book looks more like wheatley did at this time he's big and hefty and bald i think he's even part european i think he's like half french or something but mm, don't quote me on that but in in the movie Charles Gray plays him as an Englishman, and it, it works perfectly well. He's uh, he's just really, really upper class, really self-possessed, really well-spoken, and oily and weaselly. 
um, in, in all the best ways. He's a terrific, terrific villain. Now, when they get to the party, they have a quick chat with these two, and it turns out that Rex has met Tanith before, and this isn't really established. They don't, they don't go much into this in the film, but it's a nod to the books where there's a whole series of books with these characters, and like Wheatley goes in and out of different genres with the same characters. None of the other books with them, well, not, not for several years anyway, had any occult themes. They just were like straight up adventures. But it's it's a nod to an earlier novel, I think The Forbidden Territory, where Rex has come across this girl um, like down in Biritz or, or one of those kind of swanky European towns where people went for gambling and stuff in those days. And they note that there there can't be more than thirteen people um, at this for this party. So that kind of rings alarm bells. They're up to something nefarious, clearly. And uh, the Duke, there's a wonderful scene where the Duke hovers around the room and picks up on different people's chat. And it's all stuff like, "Oh, will the stars be right tonight?" And uh, "Oh, what will we learn about the future?" You know, during this uh, ceremony and that sort of thing. So clearly they're up to no good. They're obviously just a bunch of no good Satanists. But in true weekly fashion, uh, the two ha- still have time to, you know, grab a glass of fine wine and compliment Simon on his, his fine taste, which is something Wheatley always did in his books. He was, in, re- in real life, he'd been a wine merchant and he liked to show his, his work and his research at all times. So he, will, he would literally stop the novel, stop the action, just to have a rant about, you know, the, the, how good or bad a particular character's taste in alcohol was. So they, before they get kicked out by Simon, because Simon is like, oh, oh, sorry, old chaps, you know, I'd love to hang out. But unfortunately, you know, we have this astronomical meeting tonight and you can't stay because there can't be more than 13 people. And the Duke says, OK, that's grand. But you know what? Before you kick us out, let, let me take a look at your your like sweet astronomy setup up in your tower. So they go up to the tower and the astronomy room where the telescopes are. And it's a great set. I really like it. There's all these weird occult kind of hangings on the wall and there's a brilliant one on the floor that looks really spooky. And there's an absolutely amazing scene where the Duke opens up a cupboard and he finds a, a hen and a cockerel in there as if waiting for some kind of ceremony. And he just puts on the... He puts on the kind of teacher voice and he says, you fool, I'd rather see you dead than playing or messing around with black magic. And he's he's stentorian, he's authoritarian, he's suddenly he's the, the older character and he gives uh, Simon this big speech where he's like, look, I'm I'm much older than all of you and, and though I've never used my own age and my experience to demean you, tonight I will break that rule. And I, I urge you to believe me and take me seriously when I tell you that you're dealing with you know, you're meddling with things that you don't understand. And it's a fantastic, fantastic turn from from Christopher Lee throughout, really. It's, it's rare to see him as the good guy, and he's so brilliant. He's so... His authority is is kindly and fatherly and friendly, but, there, you know, it's, it's for sure, and it's for... He's just got amazing presence and authority in this. So he... So, as happens frequently in this book, they just solve things by, you know, a quick... Quick right hook to the chin. <laughs> Somebody punch. I think it's Rex punches Simon, and he you know knocks him out. And they take him back to the Duke's apartment, which, if I remember correctly, in the novels is on Curzon Street in London, but it's not mentioned in the film. It's just he lives in a swanky apartment. He has a butler named Max, I think, and uh, he has his apartment is full of artifacts from his travels around the world, as befits 
this kind of character and oh wouldn't you know it you know earlier in life he's made a a thorough investigation of you know the, the occult and he knows everything about it and he recognizes the the signs that something bad is happening and he knows exactly what to do so there's an interesting scene where they take a or he uses a bit of hypnosis to put simon under and then he puts a crucifix on him now in the book interestingly it's not a crucifix but a swastika now this requires a bit of unpacking because of the 1934 is the period when the book was written and dennis wheatley was he was into appeasement he wrote quite a bit about not going to war with germany for several reasons i mean it wasn't an uncommon point of view at the time even in britain and he himself had lived briefly in germany and felt great affection towards germans and we kind of forget now that even even hitler and and many ordinary germans thought that it was unthinkable that britain would go to war with them they felt a great kinship and i think hitler was personally disappointed when you know that that eventually happened and i don't think he expected it at all so Wheatley of course later on wrote loads of books about the war in which the Germans are unambiguously the bad guys so he absolutely did change his tune but back in the 1930s he he was a little bit different and in fact The Devil Rides Out the book is is frequently mentioned as being an appeasement novel because part of the plot is about the occult sort of machinations that led to the First World War and a lot of people interpret this as he's kind of letting the Germans off the hook for starting the first world war at a time when in real life um you know hitler's doings were amongst the things that were brewing the the second one in reality so he puts the crucifix in the book on on simon's around simon's neck and interestingly rex says oh funny you would put one of those on on this guy and him being jewish and derich Lowe says something like oh yeah i mean it's a pity that the germans are giving the Jews a rough time in their own country and using this symbol, you know, to do it. But he gives the, the usual sort of occult explanation that the swastika, of course, is a much older symbol. It's originally traced to India and lots of other traditions that have nothing to do with, with Nazism. And it's been a very long time, obviously, since any anyone can really use the swastika without, you know, the, the taint of Nazism. But yeah, it, it was a different time. So in the film, it's a crucifix, and they, the two gentlemen sit down in the Duke's uh, pad, and they have some brandy, and he gives uh, the Duke gives a, a lecture on the occult, and there's some wonderful dialogue here, which is is very convincing, and a lot of it is taken from Dennis Wheatley's novel, and and you know the film does a great job of laying out the rules of how the occult works in this universe and making it seem you know convincing or at least internally consistent and rex behaves as an uh, you know a skeptical person would a scientific minded person and the duke is able to give some good answers and you know it works within the the framework of the film it's really good fun i really like this bit anyway uh, mokata interferes he's got some kind of long distance powers of sort of hypnosis and stuff and uh, with his help simon actually manages to escape and i guess he's sort of possessed by makata or he's under his power in some way and he leaves the flat so the two leads have to go back to simon's house to investigate the the the, the room with the telescopes one more time and there's some really effective scenes here where they're prowling around the empty house and they notice that oh everything becomes supernaturally cold and the, the duke is investigating the various occult bits and bobs that are in the room and he he notes that uh, 
Simon is becoming an adept of the, quote, left-hand path, and that he's probably going to have to be rebaptized. So there's all this stuff about... There's loads of really great information here about how this supposed Satanism works with rebaptisms and having to take the name of some former uh, powerful adept in, in the occult. And they talk about Tanith, uh, and they presume that her name is not real. They presume that the fact that she's named Tanith must mean that she has been already baptized into Satanism because Tanith is uh, the moon goddess of the Carthaginians. That's what uh, Christopher Lee says. It's always interesting to me how kind of vague in other ways the Satanism is in, in, in the books and in the film. They, they don't actually reference the devil very often at all. Um, they're far more likely to bring up other random pagan gods from older civilizations and kind of i think the truth really is that our modern concept of quote-unquote satanism which owes a lot to weekly and, and and matthew summers basically is just taking bits of old pagan stuff and you know sometimes sometimes it's satan sometimes it's moloch sometimes it's uh, baphomet sometimes it's uh, any number of you know tanith it doesn't matter as long as it's old and pagan and sounds spooky that'll do so again i'm not a <laughs> i'm not a theologian so he picks up a book and he says, oh, the clavicle of Solomon, it's invaluable. So all this great Wheatley stuff. Wheatley was a great collector of books. He liked uh, old kind of grimoires and he was obsessed with pricing on everything. He always stopped in his novel to mention how much something would have cost. So it's entirely in keeping with him for, uh, for the Duke to pick up a book and say something like this. And it just speaks to... I think the screenwriter Richard Matheson here, he really takes all the right stuff from the book. Obviously, the film is far more pared down and it doesn't go into anything like the same level of detail, but he really captures the spirit of it and and brings in a lot of the, the flavor, the the kind of incidental flavor of Wheatley, as well as just the, the straight-up plot. So then something happens which dates the film quite a lot, which is that the lights go down and the, the temperature drops and then... Um, a, a spirit, an evil elemental appears and, you know, in true Wheatley fashion, there's nothing scarier to him than just a, you know, spooky looking black fellow, unfortunately, which is how this particular spirit manifests. Uh, we do, of course, get this uh, great, we do get a great scene where the Duke uh, sort of puts on his teacher voice and says, oh, Rex, don't look at the eyes. And uh, they, have to, they have to avert their eyes uh, to not become uh, swept up in the sway of the power of this, this elemental uh, once they escape from from it from him and from the house they're driving away and we get some more brilliant sort of satanic color here where we learn that uh, mokata must be an ipsissimus which is some kind of high-ranking official in, in this satanic organization we also learn that it's almost uh, april 30th which of course is valpurgisnacht which is in occult fiction is this big deal it, do, it does have real uh, folkloric traditions associated with it, but in, in stories like this, it, it's always a great time of year to have your satanic baptism. And the Duke notes that Makata, no way will Makata pass up an opportunity to baptize uh, not only Simon, but also Tanith, because we've learned now that she was actually born as Tanith. That was her birth name. So that doesn't, so she might not actually have been satanically baptized yet. So we can still save her. That's the, that's the point here. You've got to have a pretty young woman to save as well. It can't just be a fellow. So then, absolutely wonderfully, the Duke says, right, you 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 go and take care of things, Rex. I've got to go off to the British Museum to do a deep study of several occult books which are kept under constant lock and key. 
love that stuff. Shades of Lovecraft, really, with the Necronomicon, which is held in a museum where, you know, there's copies of it that are, I, th I think are hidden away and locked and, you know, nobody's allowed to look at them. And the one guy who did look at them one time, he went mad. So a little bit of that there. And there's a fabulous bit of dialogue where um, Rex says, OK, I'm going off to get Tanith. Can I, can I take a car? <laughs> can I borrow a car? And the Duke says, yes, take any of them. <laughs> there is then a sort of a car chase where... Rex picks up Rex picks up um, Tanith somewhere in the book he goes to he looks around hotels in London uh, but then while they're driving in the English countryside Makata appears to her he, she can sort of see his eyes in the rearview mirror and he's using some sort of uh, satanic hypnotism on her and she tries to escape and there's a bit of a car chase and then they finally get to the house of the fourth member of the group who is Richard Eaton and his wife Marie. Now, in the books, there's a lot of stuff that's been that's been dumped here, just because it, it would take too long to explain. But because the books are a series, and like there's lots of extra complications in the book, Richard's wife is a Russian princess who they picked up on adventures in Soviet Russia in in the Forbidden Territory novel. But in this one, she's just Marie. She's just English, and they live in a lovely big Tudor house with their little girl. Uh, Richard is played by Paul Eddington, Marie is played by Sarah Lawson, and she's brilliant. She really, she gets way more stuff to do than Tanith actually does, and she's a far stronger uh, female presence in this in this story than Tanith is at, at all. So there's another car chase, and Mokata shows a, few, a bit more of his power. He's able to generate a fog, and Rex crashes the car, Tanith escapes. Rex makes his way to a nearby large country house where he finds out that all the Satanists have gathered and they've all got their lovely uh, period automobiles sitting at the front. In the book, I distinctly remember in the book, Wheatley says something like, you know, he gives a list of all the different kinds of vehicles and then says something like, you know, all told, there was, there was over 150 pounds worth of automobiles sitting there, which obviously was a crazy amount of money in 1934. And then all the vintage cars drive off into the forest and they have their sabbat. And all the classic Satanist stuff that we now think of is, is here. They're all wearing white robes, except the top tier guys like Mokata are wearing purple. There are tents. There's chanting in Latin. He says things like Echo Babylon, Echo Osiris. Again, just, yeah, just bring up any old school pre-Christian gods. Doesn't really matter. They're all the same. They bring out a goat to sacrifice. And then the Duke arrives and uh, <laughs> he says something like, Oh, I've got these little tubes of salt and mercury. This is the result of my my research in the British Museum, and they they sneak up on the on the ceremony, which is by now turned into a rather a well behaved orgy. I think the film is the victim of you know just what you could and couldn't do in nineteen sixties British cinema. So they're trying to show that everybody is just completely losing it, and inhibitions are gone. Uh, but you know people are drunk and dancing and stuff but they're and they're trying to hint that there's more going on but since like nobody can really take their clothes off it, it's not as uh, not as scandalous as I think they want it to be and at the height of the ceremony uh, Makata shuts everybody up and you know this this figure appears on top of a rock looking down at them into the forest and uh, it's like <laughs> this is like the, one of the big occult high points of the film and you know whether it works for you or not will vary but it's basically a guy like this kind of pale pasty naked guy wearing a goat head well you know it's kind of sinister but it's kind of silly as well and then the duke says the goat of mendez the devil himself 
And I looked this up. The goat of Mendes comes from a city in Egypt, which in old times worshipped a sort of a ram god, and the city was called Mendes. And at some point in maybe medieval Christianity, you know, this is just one of many, many pagan gods who they just sort of took a few elements from and added to their evolving concept of what the devil was or what the devil might have looked like. So they decide that they need some light to combat all this darkness, and they, the two heroes drive into the grove with their car, with their headlights on, and this disrupts the Satanists. And they manage to get a hold of Simon and Tanith once again. So they take them back to the Eaton's house, that's Richard's house, and then we get a... We get a a classic Wheatley thing again, where the Duke has to convince Simon, or he has to convince, convince Richard now that yes, Satanism is real. Yes, this is a real threat. And, you know, because you are coming into this fight fresh and we're all kind of tired and we've been dealing with it for a few days, uh, you are going to be really important and we have to stay pure. So that means we can barely eat any food and we can't have any alcohol. And this is a big deal in the books because this happens a lot, this idea of keeping pure and having to hold back on all the good things in life that you normally like doing. And, you know, the characters talk endlessly about, oh, if only if only this wasn't happening, we'd all be having a slap-up dinner of, you know, goose and duck and I'd be drinking a fine, you know, champagne from, you know, the 19th century or something. And a little bit of that makes its way into the film as well. There's a few times where Richard gets sceptical and says, oh, hang this, you know, why can't a fellow have a sensible drink, you know? Because alcohol is such an important element of the Wheatley universe. So while they're getting ready for for the night, uh, Makata visits and he gets an incredibly good scene with Marie where he comes in and sits down on the couch with her and he's just smooth and oily and self, sort of self-satisfied and wow, Charles Gray does an incredible job in this scene and you totally believe that he is just mesmeric and he could convince somebody and he does a really great job of sort of uh, taking on the mindset of somebody who is skeptical in order to convince them not to be and Marie is brilliant in this as well so she she is eminently sensible and she's does all the right things and says all the right things and almost falls under his sway but uh, not not quite so one of the high points of the film for sure as I said earlier, Makata, he's called Damien Makata in the book. I don't think they mentioned that at any point in the film. But he's based, even though he looked like Crowley in the book, he's more based on a guy called Montague Summers, who was a kind of a maybe occult, maybe bullshitter, uh, English, maybe not even a real priest, a guy who wrote a lot of books about the occult in the 1920s and 30s and knew Wheatley rather well and... I think was more of an influence on Wheatley's ideas about the occult than Alistair Crowley was in reality. So, the he you know Makata gets to talk about how ma- magic is nothing more than a type of science. It is nothing more than the application of will to force change upon the universe, and he, he makes it all sound very sensible. And he says, you know, there's nothing of the sinister. Uh, which, you know, the popular idea has attached to it, and there's nothing to be afraid of. It's a perfectly normal thing to do. Now sit down here while I, you know, you know get you to do what I want you to do. And then the, the little girl interrupts and kind of breaks his spell, little Peggy. And uh, he, for some reason, this kind of puts an end to his attempt, and he stands up and says, I'm going now. I shan't be back. But something shall, which is one of the best best lines in the in the movie and i don't think is in the book question mark i think that might have been a richard matheson edition 
And then we get the sort of high point of the film and the book, which is the pentagram in the library scene. Now this is definitely taken from William Hope Hodgson, who wrote sort of occult stories around the turn of the century. He had a series called Karnaki, the Ghost Finder, and Karnaki is a faintly ridiculous sort of Edwardian ghost hunting detective, and he's always he's always drawing circles and chalk on floors and uh, doing weird spells and using bits of weird occult science to try and find out what's up with the ghost. And Wheatley just takes a whole bunch of this here, but it's a great scene in the book and it's a great scene in the film. So he makes a circle on the floor in the library. They take all the furniture out and he's expecting that Makata is going to make some kind of psychic attack on them during the night. So they have to stay within the circle and the circle has all these ritual words around the outside. And the Duke says, right, we have to stay here. We can't eat, we can't drink. We can't leave the circle for any reason. And Mokato will try to break us up and he will try to get us to leave. And <laughs> there's a great scene where Eat Richard, who's still a bit skeptical, says, oh, you know, damn this. Why can't I go and get a drink? And the Duke is like, oh, Mokato's working on you first because you're the weakest link. You're the skeptical one. And he, ha- he has to beg him to stay and just say look do it for the sake of friendship i don't even care if you don't believe me just do it because i'm asking you and we're old friends and richard says something like oh damned low of you to to you know appeal to friendship old chap which is brilliant anyway the the psychic attack begins and the lights go down and the room gets cold and they suddenly hear the voice of rex coming from outside and he's like oh chaps let me in it's cold out here and uh Richard says, oh, of course we must let him in. And of course the Duke has to get stern and say, you fool, do you think that's really Rex out there? And then a, a giant spider appears, which uh, the, the the filmmakers use a variety of techniques to, to pull this off. There's a real, a real tarantula on a tiny miniature set. And there's some maybe rear screen projection or, or blue screening or something like that. And it's not convincing, but it is fun. And then a, a, a Peggy comes into the room and gets threatened by the spider. And of course, the, the her parents are encouraged to go and rescue her. And again, the Duke has to be like, oh, that's that's not really Peggy. They're trying to get you to leave the, the circle. And then the last desperate attempt by Makata is the he's summoning of the Angel of Death, who once he has been summoned, he cannot return uh, back to the dark side without having a soul. So the Angel of Death is basically a guy on a horse with these weird wings coming out of it. Uh, again, the effect is okay. Um, I think it's undercut by... There's a lot of repeated use of footage and sort of reversing the footage. So and it's really obvious and sort of takes you out of the film a little bit. I would love to see a version of this film with... I'm not going to say better special effects. I'm not saying this would be well served by a bunch of CGI creatures, but just maybe more subtle effects where you don't see the horrors as much uh, and it was it was a little bit more not psychological but just subtle but i mean Wheatley didn't really Wheatley didn't really do subtle anyway the duke finally has to pull out his his last ditch uh, defense which is this ritual he doesn't want to use because it's so dangerous and it's i think he calls it the susama ritual or the sama ritual is what it's called in the book but again that's also taken from as far as i remember it's taken from William Hope Hodgson. I'm pretty sure he used something with almost the same name, and it ends with the phrase, uh, Galatim Galata. And this does for the Angel of Death. He, he disappears, but he's got to take a soul with him. So they wake up to find that not only is Tanith dead and her soul taken by the Angel of Death, but that little Peggy has been kidnapped. 
So there's a scene then where the Duke sort of has to ritually summon the ghost of Tanith by putting Marie into a a trance and Tanith speaks through her. And we get a little a little bit of kind of straight Christian theology here where he's like, are you truly Tanith? Oh, yes, I am. And do you acknowledge our Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, I do. And I say that's unusual because Wheatley himself was not a church guy and he wasn't big into Christianity. And his, despite the fact that he made his name with, you know, books about the devil and Satan worshippers and stuff, he had this kind of idea of good versus evil where there was more than one way to be good and there was more than one way to be evil. And often his characters who were good would be Christians and would be sometimes even churchmen, but he makes it very clear that he has a lot of respect for other religions and other ways of thought. And yeah, like there's more than one way to be a good person and Christianity is one and Jesus is an important uh, positive character from history, but he's he's just as likely to say, you know, uh, a Mo- uh, well, maybe not a Muslim, but <laughs> certainly a... Certainly a Hindu or a pagan could just as easily, um, you know, do good in the battle against evil. And one of the things he returns to again and again is symbols. So the symbol of the cross is powerful against evil because there are, it has centuries of thought behind it, centuries of positive, um, good thought. And he, But he would say just the same thing with the swastika. And in fact, in the book, there's a scene that doesn't happen in the film where they end up at Stonehenge, which he says is one of the most powerful you know, sites for ritual good in the history of mankind because there's thousands of years of, you know, positive energy and thought and ritual that have happened there. So he's he's quite open-minded for a guy who's often regarded as being a reactionary and a Victorian, and he was in his politics in many ways, but when it came to religion and sex and stuff, he was a bit of a bit of a freewheeler. There's a touch of the sort of 1890s decadent about Wheatley, and again, a lot enough of that makes its way into this film. I, I really think that Richard Matheson was very clever in what he what he chose to use and what he didn't. Anyway, the, the seance with with Tanith is, is interrupted because I think Rex gets too upset or something and uh, the Duke has to say, you darn fool, you could have killed her and he gets very angry and very parental and teacherly once again. Anyway, they, they get enough information from the ghosts of Tanith to find out where the Satanists are making their final attempt and they're back at the big house in the countryside in this kind of underwhelming basement where they are doing their their final ceremony. And this time they have the little girl, Peggy, on the altar and all everyone is there with their robes and the 13 acolytes are all ready to go. And strangely enough, they're making intonations to Almighty Set, another Egyptian deity, because, yeah, whatever. As long as it's old and spooky and not Christian... Again, like the the whole notion of what this cult is and what they believe is pretty vague. The film is called The Devil Rides Out, but apart from when the Duke calls the the goat-headed guy the 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 goat of Mendes, the devil himself, there isn't a lot of specific mention of like Satan as an entity. And there, compared to the book, there's very little mention of what it is this group are actually trying to achieve. Why is it so important to them that they they have a satanic baptism for for Tanith and for Simon. There's a lot more about this in the book. It becomes clear that they're all fighting over this artifact, which is going to start a new world war, which of course would have been very timely in 1934. But the film just does not have, or the film just doesn't have the time to get into that. Basically, 
they're bad occultists and they want to turn Tanith and uh, Simon into one of them and that's that's enough. That's all there is to it. So there's a kind of a black mass thing going on in this basement and uh, Tanith, her spirit, suddenly intervenes once again through through Marie and this kind of interrupts the ceremony long enough to to kind of upset it and stop it and there's some prayers said by Peggy, the little girl, and as in much of Wheatley's work, there is a great power in youth and innocence. So the fact that she says this prayer is enough to transform the temple and it starts to crash and there's explosions and um, everybody finds out that it's turned from a evil satanic basement into an actual church. And then everybody wakes up and guess what? They're back in the library and Tanith is alive once again and time has been reversed. And they they just kind of say, well... If she's back, then somebody else must be dead because the angel of death has to return with a soul and can't come back empty-handed. And they just kind of presume that that must mean Mokata is dead. And the film doesn't really have a whole lot, whole lot more time to get into that. And that is where it wraps up. So that's The Devil Rides Out. Just my thoughts about it. It's still a lot of fun. It is old-fashioned and it is very silly. But it's fun to see... Uh, it's fun to see Christopher Lee in particular playing a good guy. It's really fun to see Wheatley's work given a decent outing. I don't think his work translates easily to film, and I don't think any other film did a decent job of this. The only other main one that you're likely to come across anywhere is the the sort of semi-sequel to The Devil, A Daughter, which was written by Wheatley quite a bit after its prime and isn't nearly as good, and that was turned into a film in the 70s made by Hammer quite a bit after their prime, and also isn't nearly as good, and is is reacting to a very different time in filmic history. It's post post Exorcist, post The Omen. It's it's that period of sort of Catholic horror that was really popular at the time. And again, it feels like Hammer are reacting to something rather than kind of sticking to their own strengths. So that's my rundown of The Devil Rides Out. If I ever get around to rereading the book, I'll be happy to talk about that too, but I feel like I've said a lot about it. I love Dennis Wheatley for all his warts and all all his problems. Um, I think he's tremendously fun to read, and I think he's a very interesting time capsule of that era. And if you're interested in in like James Bond and that sort of mid-century British style of thrillers, I think there's a lot you can learn from Wheatley as well. So I think I'll wrap it up with that, folks. Hopefully hopefully you enjoyed it. Like I said, next episode is going to be uh, myself talking with uh, Jace, or W. Scott Poole about Lovecraft. It's really good. I'm excited about it. If you want to get in touch with us, as always, we are on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, and on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So stay safe, and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.